images of Jesus. Um, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at three miracles tonight. And uh, a couple of things about uh, the Gospel of Mark, in case you're, uh, if you've been with us, uh, this is kind of a reiteration. Uh, if you haven't been with us, then kind of let you know what, what the purpose is. But the way that the writer has written uh, this Gospel is was really for the purpose of, of not necessarily to go into great depth and detail about the life of Christ, but um, kind of as we've been saying, to give us some some snapshots of who Jesus is and um, the ministry that he's done. And so uh, we get to chapter 6, and we're going to look specifically at three miracles that Jesus performed, um, two of which uh, probably are, are, are very familiar, um, but I want us to think, uh, think a little bit deeper about them. Um, I'd say if, if we could understand the Gospel of Mark and we could understand how it, how it seems to, to identify Christ, um, probably the term that would probably come up the most would be that he's a, he's a servant. Uh, more than that, he's a suffering servant. And I think that's very obvious in uh, these stories uh, that Rick just read. Um, so why don't we start, uh, take a look down at uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, I think it's a story that many of you have, have heard before. Maybe even if, if you've never grown up in church, uh, you're familiar with the, the feeding of the 5,000, this story. Um, basically, what, what's going on, let me give you a little bit of background. What's going on is you have the disciples, are, uh, they've, just, they've just finished an, a really intense ministry, a really intense time of, of uh, teaching, of uh, performing miracles, of uh, doing many miraculous things in the name of Christ in the, in the local uh, cities. Um, and, and notice what it says in, in verse 30, that the apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. Okay, so they, they basically, Jesus has sent them out. We learned that a couple chapters back, that he sent them out two by two. And they're coming back, and um, they're, they're communicating, hey, here's what's happened. Here's what's, here's what's going on. Uh, this past week, uh, I spent, along with uh, a couple other, uh, couple other people here, we spent this past week at, at Super Summer, uh, which is a summer camp in the Baptist Circles. And uh, basically, at the end of the day, we did this very type of thing. All of us leaders, we got together at night, and we came together, and we said, okay, here's what happened today. Here's what God did. Here's some stories. And that's, that's what's happening here in verse 30. They're all talking about some of the different things that had happened. And Jesus makes this statement that they're probably very excited about. He's like, all right, let's, let's go away and let's rest. For us, this past week, here, here's the way it works. It was the words, every night... My wife, not my wife, but the guy who's, who's speaking, he's, my wife made some incredible, fattening, really bad for you dessert. Let's go to McClellan, which was a, a building on South University's campus, and let's eat. And we were like, yes. And so we would all take off down there and eat some amazing stuff. Okay, so Jesus is basically saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to go away and we're, we're going to rest. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to rejuvenate ourselves. Um, after being in the midst of this, this busy, busy ministry. All right? Um, now, I want you to think about this for a second. What would happen if, if, if you had a cure for cancer? People begin to get word that you had a cure for cancer. What would happen? You'd have people following you. You'd have people knocking on your doors. You'd have people have media, you'd have paparazzi, and if you follow the John K plus 8, all that's like, you know, they get to the 
where they're like, we hate media, we hate a following. Well, in this case, what you have is you have the disciples, they've, they've been doing so much incredible things in the name of Christ that people began to be very curious about what was happening. And so they started following. And some of them were probably very sick and in need of healing, in need of, of something to take place in their life. Others of them were probably like, just curious. Just kind of curious what's going on. All right, so they, they take off, as, as it says here in the text, and um, they'd been so busy and so crunched by what was going on, they didn't even have to eat. Okay? Uh, now pick up at verse uh, 32. It says, They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Okay, so here's what's happening. You got the disciples, they get in a boat. Okay? And they take off in a boat. And if you could picture like a picture like a lake, uh, in this case it's the Sea of Galilee, and these all these people see these disciples taking off in this boat, and what they do is they, they like run around on the shore. Well, there must have been some type of wind because the text says that the, the people beat them. It says they ran they, they made it there quicker than the disciples who were in a boat. Um, so probably would tell us that that's probably Windy, probably having a hard time getting there on a boat. Look at verse uh, 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he, speaking of Jesus, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Okay. If you're around people all the time, and you have opportunity to kind of relax, to kind of take a break, to kind of step back, and you're just like, let's say you're let's say you're looking forward to some like relaxing vacation, uh, just kind of away from the busyness of life. And when you get there, it's the exact opposite of what you intended. How would you feel? Like, you'd probably be disappointed, right? Like if it's just people, 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 and you're just like, I just need I need to be away from people. Well, here, here what you have is you have Jesus who has spent so much of his time and energy pouring his life into people. And he's like, we're going to go and we're going to get away. We're going to go to a wilderness area where there's not a lot of people and we're going to take a break. And what happens? Who's there? Like all the same people that are there all the time. But do you pick up on the language of what it says? It says he had compassion on them. For he knew that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, this, this term, sheep without a shepherd, it, it really is an Old Testament uh, understanding that we, that we take from the Old Testament. And if you know anything about sheep, uh, they don't have the greatest eyesight. Um, and so they need a guide. They need someone that can help them, that can give them uh, motivation, that can give them purpose. Uh, it's, you know, you're probably familiar with the idea of like a, a shepherd's staff. It has a big hook on it. It's so that sheep don't just fall off a cliff, okay? Um, and so with what, what Jesus was seeing here was he was seeing all these people that were, were so lost that they had no purpose for their life. They had no direction for their life. They were just running around. If they had cameras back then, they would have had cameras. They would have been taking pictures. You know, they probably had paper and were writing or, I don't know, stones or whatever they did, okay? Um, I mean, they're trying to take in all that's going on. And Jesus has this compassion on them. 
Look at this passage in John 10. Verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So, this is a shepherd. He's considered a shepherd. As Scripture says, he's considered the good shepherd, the one who uh, would eventually go and die on a cross to redeem man from their sin. All right? And so... What's happening here is Jesus recognizes, here are these people that need a guide. Everything they're doing in their life is meaningless and pointless because they haven't recognized who I am. They they don't know who I am. They, They just think I'm about healing them physically or meeting their needs tangibly, which in part, yes, but but that's not completely entirely who we know Jesus to be. And so what what Jesus is saying, and when he sees and when he has compassion on them, what he's saying is this. He's saying, these, these people, they need purpose. Because John says, I've come to have life and have it abundantly. So it would seem to indicate that it's possible to live life. It's not like people that don't know Jesus are dead. Like, they're alive. They're walking around. They're eating. They're going to work. They're going to school. They're, they have life. There's enjoyment apart from Christ, but, but there's something that's different about Jesus, about following Jesus, about walking with Jesus, about knowing Jesus that gives purpose and direction and satisfaction. And we're going to see that in this miracle. It gives satisfaction to life. Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 23 about the Lord being a shepherd. 3035. And when it grew late, Jesus came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So, this is quite a different response, not from what Jesus said. The disciples, on the other hand, while, while Jesus is like compassionate, sees the big picture, knows that these people have serious heart condition, in need of who he is, the disciples are like, dang it. I was looking forward to some nice sit-back leisure on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, you know, throwing seashells into the, the sea. And all these people come, and so they're like, Jesus, here you go again. You start teaching, and you start doing your thing, and it's getting late, and all of a sudden they're like, they're probably hungry. I got an idea. Let's send them into town to get some food. Well, something that, that probably you don't know just from reading the text is how big the towns were. Um, Capernaum and Gennesaret and um, the other towns that are surrounding the Sea of Galilee were probably anywhere from like two to 3,000 people. Okay, and so here you have... The, what, it's the feeding of how many? 5,000. That's probably not completely accurate, because 5,000 represented who? The men. Okay, so you could probably double it and get close. But let's say, if that's, if that's still too much, then maybe we could say 8,000, somewhere in there. Okay? Now, if, if the towns are, are populated by two to 3,000 people, and you send eight to 10,000 people to the local towns to, to hit up the local restaurants or whatever they had, yeah, that's, that's, gonna, that's probably not the best solution. 
Um, and I'm sure that the local townspeople would agree. And if they knew they were coming, we would say, yeah, we, we can't handle that. It's like uh, taking students uh, on a basketball trip, uh, a busload, and you pull up to McDonald's. And you could just sense the feeling in those people. They're just like, dang it. And I'm in the back, and I'm like, I get up to the front, and I'm like, do you guys have any specials for coaches? Like, do you give any free meals? And they're, yeah, we do. <laughs> okay, like, they, they would have taken over the town. They totally would have taken them. It, would just, it just wouldn't have worked. And, and part of it probably was that, not just that, I have a solution. Let's, let's give them a nice meal in the town. They're like, Sometimes I think we think the disciples are these like unbelievable, super spiritual, like no nothing like us. But when we read the Bible, we learn that they're they're, they're quite a bit like us. And yeah, God does great things through them, but they have their they have their shortcomings nonetheless. As we understand this passage. Let's read it. Let's finish reading real quick, and then I'll make this point. Um, pick up at verse 37. I tried to send them away. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Okay, so what, what's really funny about this is Jesus is like, oh, you, you don't like them? You want, you want them to leave? Well, well the town, that's just not going to work. Why, why don't you feed them? You got some money? I got some pocket change? Why don't you, why don't you feed them? And they're like, uh, we could r- run in town and get some bread. and Because you know what 200 denarii was? It was about three quarters of an annual salary for one of those people. Three quarters of an annual salary. That just wasn't happening. And, and I think Jesus knew that. I don't think he was like, come on, guys, I know you got... Like, he knew they didn't have it. Okay, but what is he doing here? He's trying to get them to realize that there's something so much bigger happening in this miracle, in this story, in what, what's about to take place that is beyond them. It is absolutely beyond them. And he, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found it, they said... Five and two fish. <laughs> and he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Do you think this, like, threw the disciples for a loop? Like, like, like what, what do we got? You know, why don't we survey the people and see how many, like, if anybody's got anything on them, like, you know, granola bar or anything, we can, we can you know, help these people out and come back. Like, we got five loaves of bread, two fish, and Jesus is like, why don't you tell the people to sit down? They're like, what? Are, are you kidding me? Like, and, and, and these people riled up enough, and the disciples are probably thinking, well, you know, I'm going to venture to guess that a little breadcrumb might just send them off the edge. I'm, I, don't, I don't think this is going to work. Um, and he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties, interesting. We see God, God being a God of order, has them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves, and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves 
and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. You know what's really interesting that we probably don't see initially? Is that when you read this miracle, check this out. I realized this when I was studying. I never realized this before. There is no indication in anywhere in this miracle that this miracle was performed for the people. There's no indication that, that shows that this miracle, that, that the people knew about it. I don't think Jesus stood up on a big rock and was like, all right, everybody watch. I have five loaves and two fish. Poof, you know, we're all going to eat. No, it doesn't. There's nothing, there's nowhere that I could find that even commentators say, there's no indication that the crowds knew that this miracle was just performed. So what does that tell us? Who's it for? Yeah, it's the people, but who's it for? The disciples. So Jesus is trying to communicate something to the people that are closest to him, to the people who didn't, who wanted the crowds to leave. Send them to the towns, get them away. And he, he's like, hold up. Like, do you see? People, they need direction in their life. They need purpose in their life. They need to come to understand who I am. And so he starts teaching them. And then more than that, he has a lesson. He has a lesson for the disciples. But this entire thing, the disciples were the one who prompted the thought of food. The disciples were the one who went and got the food and brought it to them. The disciples were the ones who, who went and got the baskets and brought them back. Who is this for? It was, it was for the disciples. And Jesus was trying to get them to see that what they're called to do is so much bigger than them. Because what have they just done? They had just come back from where? From ministry. They had just come back from, from pouring out themselves, and they were probably getting pretty good at what they do. Okay? I, I, I'm a teacher. I've been teaching for four years. Like, I'm kind of getting kind of good at what I do. Now, some people might say differently, but... Okay, and so what is Jesus saying here? Connected to the statement, I want you to feed them. And they're like, huh? I think in that moment, there had to be this realization that what they're part of is so much bigger than them. So much bigger than them. Uh... I'm going to have Chad come up here. Uh, Chad was a part of something this past week that that I would identify, because I was, I was with him a little bit, it was bigger than us. Myself and Chad and Rick, Joe and Rebecca, we were at Super Summer and, and just ministering to kids. And, uh, and so Chad's going to share a story about uh, some of the stuff that he saw God do uh, this, uh, this past week at Super Summer. So Chad, come on up here. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, you know what's what's really interesting uh, is I don't know if you heard the, the the last thing that he said, but like like if, if if we were to evaluate Chad's condition and his ability to be effective in 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 that week, I think we would say there's no way he's distracted. He, he doesn't want to be there. If, if we would evaluate any, anyone, any one of us, myself as a team leader, Rick as a team leader, 
Any of the small group leaders? Like, God's dealing with sin in our lives? Like, that's the reality of sanctification, God continually growing us more and more in the likeness of Christ? And this is the statement that, that, just, that just hit me. Is God, God called us, and I'm speaking of us just because that, that was our experience, but God called us to something that was just so much bigger than us. So much bigger than us. You know, this is my 11th time doing this this week. By next week, 21 times I will have stood up and done what I've done, what I'm doing now in the span of two weeks. Like, I'm just like, God, are you serious? Like, this is it's so much bigger than me. And sometimes I wonder if, if, if we just get really content with just sitting back and just kind of being in something that's real comfortable and, and, and not being in situations where we're like, oh, God, I need you. Because I, I can't handle this. I can't feed 5,000 people. I can't speak to a kid who's dealing with issues of forgiveness in a way that I've never had to deal with. I don't care how qualified you are. And, and that, that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples. It was this. I want you to see me in such an unrevealed light that it leads you to see and say that everything that happens in your life apart from me is going to fail. And everything that happens in your life with me can only come by a miracle. And that's what, that's, I mean, this miracle was not for the, the 5,000. It was for the disciples. Chad, thanks for sharing that. Uh, let's look at the second miracle. Um, it takes place on the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to see uh, Jesus focusing a little bit more on the disciples. Uh, trying to inspire belief in them. He prays for them. All right? He has incredible value and passion for his disciples. Uh, so pick up at verse 45. Immediately, it's interesting, that word appears quite a bit in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately he made get into the boat before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. You know, uh, there's a couple things I just want to point out just from these verses. Uh, is He dismisses the disciples, which I think is, is really cool. Because if there's 10,000 people there, and it's just Jesus trying to do crowd control, that's a lot harder than if it's uh, Jesus and like 12 other guys. And, and he kind of dismisses them ahead, and he's like, I'll take care of the crowds. You guys just go ahead and get out of here. Take a break, whatever. Um, and, th- and then he... And, and then it, notice it says that he, 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 go, he goes away. He goes up to the mountain to pray. Um, we we that quite a bit in, in Christ's ministry. Uh, I don't think it's by just this accident thing that happened. I think it's something he does intentionally all the time. Like, how can I get away and isolate myself and reconnect with the Father? And I mean, this is Jesus. Does that strike anybody? Like if there's anyone that doesn't need to pray, if there's anyone that's just good, it just probably got the punch with God, I'm thinking it's probably Jesus. And if anybody should be praying, it should be the disciples. And he sends them off and he goes and prays. Maybe a lesson, maybe another sermon in there. Continue reading. Uh, 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. So Jesus is up on the mountain, and, and commentators say that he was in a place where he could see the disciples. I'm not exactly sure how far. Some commentators say that it was a couple miles, which is just baffling to me. But he was in a place where he could see that the disciples were struggling. Okay, does the, the fourth watch of the night is anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So you know what that tells us? Like, dinner time, yeah, we kind of know what time that is. Some of you, maybe it's like 2. Uh, but uh, for probably a good number of hours, maybe 5, 6 hours, these disciples are in the boat. And maybe for a good amount of that time, they're struggling. It says the wind is against them. And I almost wonder if Jesus' prayer was knowing what he was going to do next, knowing what was going to happen next, if he was beginning to pray about what was about ready to happen and pray that his disciples would begin to see what he wanted them to see, but he didn't see it in the feet of 5,000. And we're going to see that in just a second. But notice that it says in verse 48, he saw... A lot of times when we're in a hard time, we, we wonder if God's even there. If God's, does God see what I'm going through? Does God know? He saw it. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Question. Are the disciples in this moment walking in obedience or disobedience? Why are they in the boat? Why are they in the sea? Jesus told them. He said, hey, I want you to get in the boat and I want you to go. So they get in the boat and they go. What happens? A storm. The winds were against them. Which, what does that teach us? Trials in our lives aren't just from results of disobedience. We could be directly walking and following and honoring God in everything that we're doing and there could be a storm. So don't equate trial with, God, what did I do wrong? Because that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. God brings things into our lives for, for, for the very reason we're going to see right here is what happens. Continue reading. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Okay, here's what's happening. In this moment, they're experiencing a theophany. You know what a theophany is? A theophany is a revelation of God, a manifestation of the presence of God, a visual manifestation of the presence of God. So, so what's going on? In the midst of this storm, they see God in a way that they have never seen Him. What happens? He comes, comes walking in the water. This, this term theophany, the, the word isn't actually in the Bible, but it's, it's an Old Testament idea. Um, for example, uh, Exodus 33. This is the instance where Moses says, God, God, I want to see your presence. I want to see your glory. And in Exodus 33, it says, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Do you see that, that phrase in, in Mark where it says he, he meant to pass by them? Okay, it's the same wording. Pass by in 1 Kings 19, verse 11. 
where God reveals himself to Elijah on, on Mount Horeb. It says, and he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore and mountains broke in pieces. The rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Other theophanies in the Bible? The burning bush, Exodus 3. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, Exodus 13. The cloud and the fire of, of Sinai, Exodus 24. The cloud of the glory of the Lord, Exodus 40. All instances where God showed up on the scene in a, in a revealing, visual way where His presence is made known in a way that it hasn't been made known. But they see God in a way that is just unbelievable. What, what's going on in your life? I'm going to take a guess and say some of you maybe are going through some hard stuff. I know that doesn't happen much, but let's just hypothetical situation. Let's say that maybe some people in here. Okay, all of us. <laughs> in the midst of, of storms, whether they be a direct disobedience, ultimately storms, ultimately... Hard times are a result of, of sin. We're on earth. Sin has corrupted the world. Ultimately, they're a result of sin. But sometimes they're a result of personal sin. Other times, you could be walking in obedience to Christ, and, and there's a storm. And God is wanting to reveal to you in, in a powerful way. What is that for you? And, and are you seeing it? Because, like, look at verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Wait a second, the loaves? It's like, Mark, you missed it, buddy. That was the last miracle. Put that in the wrong spot. No, he didn't. That was, that's supposed to be there. Because this miracle is a direct connection to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Because... because if the disciples see Jesus as he's trying to get them to see, if he, Jesus is trying to get the people and the disciples to see his divinity. He's not just a man who can do marvelous things. He is God in the flesh. And he's trying to see that. And he's like, hey, if you would see that, then when I came in the water, you wouldn't be like, ghost! You wouldn't. You would have known you would have known the reality of what I'm capable of. He uses the term, their hearts were hard, which is interesting because that's the same term that in Mark 3, verse 5, and in Mark 10, verse 5, is, is used to describe the Pharisees and even unbelievers. Their hearts were hardened. But we continue... In Mark chapter 8, you can flip there if you want. But this same instance happens again. Only it's not 5,000 people, it's 4,000 people. Jesus feeds 4,000 people. And there's something really interesting that happens in Mark chapter 8 just after that. Is the disciples are having a little discussion. And I know this never happens to any of you, but they ran out of bread. You ever had that happen? Like, man, I want a sandwich. I got, there's no bread. Actually, they had one loaf left. But they're like, what are we going to do? We're out of bread. And so they, they start like going back and forth. Okay, look, I think it's on the screen. Uh, Mark 8, 16, or you can just flip there. 
And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? You've got to wonder if he's just like, not this again. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did I take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Don't you get it? Like this is like almost instantaneously, almost like feeding the four thousand. We turn around, and we're like, and we don't have bread. I wonder if there's anybody that can help us out. Like, forgot. Like I, this past week, I had this kid come up to me, and this is what he said. He said, "Dave, it was, the, it, was uh, it was like two days ago." He's like, "Dave, I feel amazing. Like this has been such an incredible week." He's like, "I haven't felt this good since last Super Summer." <laughs> and I was like. Man, that's all. Awesome. I'm excited. I'm excited about what God's done in your life. I was like, but you know what? It's like there's going to come a time when you don't feel amazing. There's going to come a time when when your when your view of God, you might doubt. Oh, do I dare say that? Yeah, you might doubt. You you might forget. Like you're either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or going to a crisis, okay, and there's going to come a time when your, your, your hope and trust in God isn't quite solid. So I told this kid, I said, here's what you need to do. You need to write down everything that God has revealed to you this week. Every verse, everything that anyone's taught you or said to you that's been hope and God has used to just challenge and spur you on, write that down. And I said, and then, maybe in a few months, and I pray that maybe it doesn't die out, but maybe in a few months, when the candle kind of fades back a little bit, and your fervor to go get the word for Christ isn't quite as strong anymore, what do you do? When you're doubting, when you're questioning, when you're falling into sin, what do you do? You grab your journal, and you open it up, and you say, okay, who is God? You grab your Bible, and you open it up, and you say, who is God? Because you know how we are? We're very emotionally led people. How do I feel? I don't feel like going to work today. I'll take a day off. Like, like, like how do we feel? We're led by our emotions. Like, and so that even translates into worship. Like, I didn't feel God, so I must not have worshipped Him. Like, that just this doesn't work that way. Like, God gave us emotions, but they can be very misleading at times if we're not careful. So I said to this kid, and I'll say to, I'll say to us here, in times of doubt, you go to where you know who God really is. And you, you open up the Bible and you say, okay, God, I'm, I need to know who you are because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if I'm not feeling him, if he's not present, oh, God must have changed. No. No, he's the same. There's just doubt that's creeping in. And how do you overcast doubt with the truth? And what is the truth? Here's what you spoke into my life beforehand. Here's what you did in my life at Super Summer for this kid. I need that in my life now. 
Because I know that's who you are. Even though I don't see it right now. Miracle number three. Crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. Uh, This is a really cool reality of of Jesus' passion for people. And you know, I wonder wonder when we read this that, that God still doesn't do that type of stuff today. I wonder when we read all these, all, all three of these miracles. If, if, if we believe that God maybe isn't a miracle-working God, that maybe God isn't in the business of, of taking, taking people and, and doing miraculous things in their lives. Because, because here in, in, in all three, in this last one, like there was this, like what would it be like if people in North County came to the realization of who Jesus was. To the point where they didn't flock to North Church. They didn't flock to whatever Baptist church down the road or whatever Presbyterian church down the road. They didn't flock to but they came to Jesus. Like wherever he's at, like Jesus, I want to know Jesus. I, I, I hear like he's the answer. Like, what would happen if that just, that just overtook him to the point where like it says like they wanted to touch even the, the, the fringe of his garment. Like what it would be like if that was us? If we're just like, if I could just, if I could just know you in such a way, I could understand you and pursue you and, and see you. If I could just touch the edge of your garment, because the apostles in Acts chapter four, when they stood before the authorities, remember what that said said that they realized that they were uneducated men, but they realized that they had been with Jesus. Every time I read that, it just knocks me back. Like, do the people that we hang out with, do they realize that? Do they realize that we've been with Jesus? Do they know the reality of the hope that we have? Because I think that there's there's people in North County. They don't they don't know that they need to be healed. And even more than that, they don't know that Jesus is the healer. Because you can't just go and say, Come to Jesus, he's the healer, and they're like, Okay, I'll tell my friend about him. I'm good. They gotta know that. They gotta know that they're sick. They gotta know that they have a need. It's, it's sin. And that's what's taking place in, in, in all of these in all of these stories. I have three quick lessons. Before I before I share these lessons, uh, I'm gonna have Rebecca come up. Uh, Rebecca was also a part of, of Super Summer and uh, just gonna share something that, that God did uh, in and through her uh, this week. So Thanks, Rebecca. 
it's really cool how God works. Because uh, that that past week, uh, we would say it was for the students, um, but God changed one one person's heart, two people's hearts, and and there was an adult there who was a youth sponsor that got saved last week. And uh, I want to give you three lessons, and these will be quick. What, what do we take from these, these miracles? How do, how do we walk out here? What do we do? These three lessons. Number one, doesn't need us, but chooses to use us. God isn't up in heaven saying, I just need Dave to be on today. No. He doesn't. He doesn't. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 is an amazing verse. Therefore, uh, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. He chooses to use us. He doesn't need us. God, the salvation of the world isn't dependent upon how good of people we are in our church. How good we do what we do. God isn't dependent on North Church. But I believe He wants to use us. Number two. God uses even the very smallest of things if they're committed to Him. I mean, you, you take the story of the feeding the five and you got the little boy. Who, five loaves of bread, two fish. He probably set it down and took off running so he didn't get laughed at. God just did an unbelievable thing. Unbelievable. I, got to, I got to pray with a kid that received Christ this past week. And I walked, God, how amazing is it that you let me be a part of that? Like this kid just confessed, like praying to Satan in the church and just confessing sin. And he's just like, I just need to be saved. I've been leading people to hell, bringing them with me. I just need to be saved. And I got to walk with him through that. I'm just like, unbelievable. What a miracle. The salvation of a soul is a God still does today. Second Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. First Corinthians says God takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He takes the weak of the world to shame the strong. Last thing. God loves bad odds because there's no mistake where the power comes from. What are the odds taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding 10,000 people? What are the odds of somebody walking on water? What are the odds of someone coming from the deep, dark depths of sin to a saving knowledge of Christ? What are the odds of someone the same message three times and the third time? She gets it. God repeats Thoughts. Not good, in case you're wondering. Not. You read the Bible and you'll see God loves taking bad odds 
and blowing us away with them. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're frail, we're weak, and God loves taking stuff and doing incredible things. Four questions to evaluate yourself. Do you believe that God is still a miracle-working God today? As you sit in this room, do you believe that? And if you don't, I challenge you to read what we went over today. Two, do you realize the miracle of your own salvation? Three, are you so self-centered that you don't allow God to use you to perform miracles in the lives of others? And four, are you watching for God's miraculous works on a daily basis? Are you watching for God's miraculous works on a daily basis? Charles Spurgeon put it like this. We believe in the providence of God, but we do not believe half enough in it. We believe in the providence of God. Say, as a church, we believe in the providence of God, but we do not believe half enough in it. Let's pray. Papa, I thank you that you have called me to yourself for salvation. I thank you that you have done a miracle in my heart by bringing the dead to life. God, bringing someone who, according to Romans 3, is not righteous and doesn't seek after you, bringing me to a place that I would desire you. God, I thank you for these three miracles that we've allowed you to penetrate our hearts with. So God, I pray that in these next moments that we would be challenged by you. God, your spirit would convict us. God, that you'd lead us to repentance. God, that we'd follow in the example of our sister who stood up here and, 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 and confessed before us. God, that maybe some, somebody in this room would come to the saving knowledge of the miraculous power of God. God, thank you for your word and how faithful it is. God, I thank you that you don't need us, but what an incredible thing that you choose to use us. God, thank you that we are so wicked, so depraved, so lost, but yet so loved and so accepted. And God, I pray that we would see you in a new light. That our small view of you would be crushed. God, we would begin to believe more and more in your providence and your miraculous power to do work in our lives and God, use us for your glory. In Christ's name.